Hello, dear listener. We are looking to add a new member to our engineering team again. Ideally, we're looking for a senior level mechanical design engineer in the Phoenix area who has experience designing custom automated machines, equipment, and test fixtures. Also, having working experience with controls and system integration would be a big plus. If you'd like to apply or suggest someone, please email us at info at teampipeline.us. The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. You know, a lot of people have done research into like insights and where, you know, ideas kind of come from. And it turns out that um, we have this loose connections in our brain. And then when they all kind of align, that's, that's kind of when the aha moment kind of comes from. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Kandai Majulabi, and uh, otherwise known as IT. Uh, I think I'll, I'll stick with IT so I don't butcher your name for the rest of the, <laughs> the podcast. Sounds good. <laughs> um, uh, IT has a degree in chemical and biomolecular engineering and works at WL Gore where he's held the roles of process engineer, new product development engineer, project manager, and currently new business development. So with that, IT, thank you and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. What made you decide to become an engineer? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. So actually, I grew up in Nigeria um, and very small town uh, in Nigeria. And I have to say, like, the options in terms of like what you could be wasn't quite as vast as, as some of the options that, you know, are available here in America. But, you know, as I was going through the educational uh, uh, curriculum in Nigeria, I started to ask myself a couple of questions uh, from just my experience and things and recognize that, hey, uh, so the first question is, what are the subjects that really resonate with you? Uh, so if you look at the sciences, the arts, etc. cetera. Uh, so got some insights there. Um, and then through that process again, uh, when I came to America, the same question like, okay, what kind of lifestyle do I want to have? And, and kind of going through that filter, filtration process kind of led me, led me into engineering. Um, and chemical engineering was just the best option just because of my passion for chemistry, physics, um, and a little bit of math as well. So. I think that's such a great way to go about it, right? Kind of starting at the end, what kind of life do I want to have? Yeah. And then reverse engineer that. What kind of profession is going to allow me to, to enjoy that, that kind of life? Um, can you, can you tell us, share a little bit about what it was like growing up in Nigeria and, and then how, um, uh, w what the path was, uh, coming to the U.S. and, and getting your degree in engineering? Yeah. So, it's so fascinating when I kind of think back at it. Um, much of my life, uh, childhood in Nigeria was about problem solving, actually. Um, so um, check it out. So in Nigeria, at least at the time when I was there, um, electricity was in 24 hours, right? So you couldn't kind of just 
sit in front of a television or play video games. So you needed to figure out a different way to entertain yourself. And that came from like just taking ordinary objects and finding, finding a new story uh, for ordinary objects and, and kind of creating entertainment around that. So, so that was actually fun. Um, I would imagine probably the same level of utility with watching television and things of this sort. I, I didn't know the difference at the time. So I didn't know I was missing, I was missing anything. Um, but Nigeria is very, um, it's a very social community. So almost everything you do, you do it with other people. Um, you can walk into anybody's home and just have a great time. Um, you don't have to be invited. Uh, there's a, you know, not a lot of barriers to just like engage in social things. But there are some challenges as well. So for example, um, just to like have water in the house, it's not a push of a button or turning of a faucet. Um, there's, there's a little bit of thinking uh, and planning uh, just to have the basic things, right? Um, you, can't, you can't take those things for granted. Um, so, but all in all, I think it was, it was exciting, it was fun. Uh, and then coming to America, it was always the prescribed path, if I could say it that way. So my parents kind of went to uh, university in America and they had this idea of, hey, you know, I have the Nigerian experience and I have the American experience as well. Uh, I, think, I think I want my children to have the best of both worlds. I want them to understand the value of hard work um, and, and, and just this community, communal culture that I described and, you know, really uh, understand the rigor, uh, the educational rigor that comes with knowing like uh, principles uh, from a theoretical standpoint. But, but I want them to come to America where there's a lot of experimentation. There's this culture of like just pushing the edge, trying new things and, and getting data um, and, and just don't be afraid to fail. Um, so so I, think, I think the thought process then was, okay, they're gonna go to school, you know, born and raised in Nigeria, but then um, after that high school uh, educational uh, uh, path has been completed, then we could kind of bring them to America and get, get the university side of things and, and kind of round up round up their skill set. I grew up in Hawaii and mm. the culture there, it sounds similar in a way to Nigeria where there's a lot of, of social interaction. People are, are pretty laid back. Certainly we, we didn't have some of the problems that you had, like having to plan for water and electricity yeah. not being on all the time. But in other ways, the, the social aspect sounds very similar and it, it was a very laid back place. And I loved that about Hawaii. I think when I went to college uh, in Utah, something that surprised me was it's not as laid back here. It, yeah. it was a very different culture, you know, and uh, that was true in education as well. And it was kind of a rude awakening to me. You know, it was like, oh, I, I actually need to really try and <laughs> try hard to, yeah. to make this work. Was Was that... Uh, an experience that you had as well, or where you all, I mean, you had to solve so many problems growing up, yeah. like you mentioned, maybe that just was not uh, a, a cultural shock at all to you. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I would say there were some new learnings I had to pick up uh, when I came to America um, and over time kind of picked those up, but, but in Nigeria, um, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example of a typical day um, in high school. In Nigeria, for example, so so when you wake up, you're probably waking up like 6:30 uh, in the morning. 
Um, you have to do some chores in Nigeria. It's part of the culture. Um, and then at some point around like 7.30, uh, you're trying to make your way to school. And then when you get to school, 8 to 2, you're, you're in school doing all kinds of things, right? Um, but then after 2 o'clock, around 2 to 4, you get a break. But around 4.30, we have something called after school, which is um, another set of schools that is optional. Uh, but most parents that can afford it would send, send their kids to after school. And that's usually like another hour and a half. And then you go home and, you know, try to get a break in between then and do some homework and all the other things you need to do. Um, and then in, in Nigeria, there's such, a, there's such a pressure of performance a little bit. And, and here's what I mean. Um, on top of having like grades for your specific classes, you're also ranked against your peers. Um, so you kind of know who's top gun. And, and this is all public. Everyone has access to that information. Yep. Everyone, so no. talk about open, open source. Uh, your parents, <laughs> your teachers, your friends, everybody, everybody knows. Um, and then in the, the particular school I went to, there was also an extra bar of performance, meaning, so if you have 40 students in the class, um, the last two students um, do not get to advance to the next level. Um, so they get an opportunity to repeat the level, and then if they're still bottom tier, it's really hard to say, thinking about it now, they get expelled. Um, so that, it's such a pressure to perform. So when I came to America, I already had that uh, ethos, that, that work culture. So it was easy for me to like just get in, uh, learn what I needed to learn, and, and try to how to like execute uh, effectively. So, wow, that's fascinating. It sounds yeah. like the educational system there was pretty rigorous, actually. Yeah, it it, it was, but um, again, like I think there was there was an interesting uh, cultural learning and you know some some great habit formation. Uh, but sometimes I wonder, like, if if a better design. Uh, was warranted in terms of making sure you have balance and really kind of going back to first principles and, and kind of really think about, hey, what, what am I going for here? Um, and why do I have, why do I have this, this structure of learning? And, and, you know, is it really giving me um, the output that I want? I mean, I would say on average, um, Nigerians, uh, from an educational standpoint, this is a general statement. I think they tend to do well, um, but, you know, if you kind of look at the trade-off, you know, so Nigerians don't typically uh, participate in sports. So that typical day I gave you, I didn't mention anything about sports or anything of the sort. Uh, that's viewed as secondary or, or, or tertiary, actually. So, so I wonder, like, you know, looking back now, if a better balance was warranted, and and how can we actually, um, you know, move away from that extreme and and kind of find, uh, you know, something more of a sweet spot from my point of view. But anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, it it reminds me a little bit of uh, folks I've talked to on the podcast who grew up on a farm. Um, mm. Not that Nigeria is a farm, but they talk a lot about just having to come up with solutions, right? A, a tool yeah. breaks, and you have to figure out how to how to fix it. Um, you don't have electricity for some portion of the day; you have to figure out how to get get by with that. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe not uh, an easier, simple life, but uh, it, it probably allowed you to develop some, some very important skills that you've relied on, you know, throughout your life. 
Yeah, um, it's interesting. I'm recalling, you know, when when there is, as you can probably imagine, uh, when when electricity is on, there's a there's a preference to maximize that time period. Um, so I recall this incident where like a TV just wasn't working, um, and I was like, what? I don't have time for TV not to be working. <laughs> so turn everything off. Actually took the TV out and actually took it apart. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I took it apart and recognized that the fuse, you know, so the surge in electricity was too high and burnt out the fuse. And I'm not saying for people to do this, but this is kind of going to your question of like solving that problem solving mentality. Um, there's no, I can't go to a store to buy another fuse. So how am I going to solve this problem? Uh, so what's the function of a fuse? You know, it's to complete the circuit, right? Is there a different way for me to kind of complete the circuit and, and ultimately solve the problem and was able to like capitalize on, you know, the time when the light <laughs> the was TV on. Time. But <laughs> that's yeah. So yeah, that's that's kind of interesting actually. Yeah. There's there a that's lot of awesome. That's yeah. awesome. I love that. And I love how uh the thought process you shared, right? You open up the TV and saw that there was a fuse blown. Now, some mm -hmm. people may have stopped there and said, okay, the fuse is blown. I don't know what a fuse is. I don't have another fuse here. But you broke it down into kind of its elemental parts, right? What is the purpose of a fuse? It's not just this black box fuse doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I don't have another one. Okay, game over. No, it was what is the fuse? What is the purpose, the function of a fuse? What else can I cobble together here that might serve the same purpose? Uh, I think that's a really important framework when when problem solving. It's it's not to just look at a problem and say, okay, it doesn't work. You know, I'm I'm out. Game over. But why isn't this working? What are the individual elements of this problem? And how can I how can I break it down far enough to where I can move forward? I can uh, implement some kind of solution. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, you've been involved in process development and performance qualification. I wanted to ask you, what, what does that process look like for you? What are the steps that you take to qualify the performance of a product or a system? Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a very good question. So, so let me take an example. Um, and in this particular example, so imagine having, uh, a drum, uh, like a 55 gallon, uh, drum full of a solid material and the solid material is a polymer um, and ultimately your goal is to try to get it to like beautiful little pellets uh, you know that you can kind of ship out to the customer and have have the customer like be able to use it in this 55 gallon uh, drum form it's it's not really usable for the customer so so the problem you're trying to solve is how do I how do I take this 55 gallon massive block of polymer down to this beautiful, nicely shaped pellets um, in the most efficient form as possible. Um, and there are several ways uh, you could do that. You could potentially melt it, right? So you could say, do I need to go from this 55 gallon material, completely melt it down and, and turn it into a, a pellet? Well, that might be like the straightforward way to do it, but you might imagine like that would be complex. Um, so you're like, okay, Let's not do that. Let me let me try to get into like smaller chunks first, and then once I get into a smaller chunk, then maybe I can melt it. You know, when I melt it, I can reform it into into a pellet. So that's that's kind of really the thought process, and and which each of those. Um, so so you might say, okay, let's go from a, a drum to like a disc. That's the first step. So just kind of cut it down, right? So how do I do that? How do I automate that process? 
And then how do I go from a disk into like shreds, right? And, and what does that look like? And then how do I go from shreds into like granules, like, you know, um, cut out non-uniform um, shapes? And then how do I go from taking that and, and transporting it into some place where I can melt it down and turn into this beautiful, very uniform um, shaped pellet? So, so it's just, you know, you take this big problem and you try to like, break it down into its small components. Um, and then once you do that, the next problem you want to solve is, okay, I've, I've been able to do it. Let's say I, I put the process down on a Wednesday and it worked. Well, what's the guarantee that it's going to work on a Thursday or Friday? What's the guarantee that it's going to work if I have somebody else running the machine? Uh, what if I get a different batch of 55 um, a gallon drum, is it still going to work? Uh, what if something breaks down? How do I make sure like I have critical parts uh, in place to to fix it? And, you know, we have a lot of, you know, the good thing is as an engineer, you don't have to start from scratch, right? So we've got some core guiding principles to help you out. Uh, you can use the theory of experimental design to kind of challenge, um, uh, it's a terminology we use, design space or boundary conditions. and um, you know, using this uh, theory of experimental design coupled with statistics kind of gives you some probability distribution. Then uh, then you can use to like measure the health of your process and, and kind of really think through like, what, what do I really need to do to operate within two standard deviation and make sure that this process is running smoothly? So those are just some perspectives that I take when I'm thinking of designing the process and, and validating it. Thank you. I, I again hear that process of breaking a big thing down into uh, smaller chunks. You know, yeah. you keep breaking it down into smaller and smaller chunks until you have something that you can actually wrap your head around. Yeah. Uh, I think oftentimes we look at a big problem. Um, from my own experience, maybe we have a new project at work and it's a big project. Maybe it's a year long project. It's really hard to look at that as this big problem slash project and say, how do we do this? Right. But if we can start breaking it up, okay, what are the different modules that go into this machine? What does yep. each module need to do? Um, what, what components do I need for each module? Where do I get each component? You keep going down and down until, until it's something you can wrap your head around and really think about in a tangible, um, uh, approachable way as opposed to this, this big, um, problem that's hard to define. And, and it's just, it, it's like, you know, uh, having someone think think about uh, a, a Googleplex, right? Like it's so yep. big that you you can't think about it. The human mind just doesn't know how to wrap that context around it. Um, yeah, and and I I totally agree. Um, so this this is something, you know, like I I do this every once in a while where like I take a product form or let's say for example a car or even just just the car engine and and actually kind of go through the process of, okay, so what is it doing and how does it do it? Um, and, and, you know, let me, let me try to break it down into its most monomeric component, like smallest component, and, and kind of think about the designer and, and why they did it. Why did they put all these pieces together in the way that they did? And is there a different way for me to, like, put it together? And would it still perform, you know, give me the same kind of output? Um, and, you know, so just kind of going through those mental exercises may help as well from a design standpoint. Uh, but, you know, it's just something I like to do because it's fun. But I totally agree with you, like breaking down the problem into small components 
is one way uh, that I found to be effective when it comes to like process design, validation, and, and things of the sort. Yeah, I think that's super important. It's it's probably not something that I have talked about enough, but there's this principle of breaking it down into smaller mm-hmm. and smaller and smaller chunks until it's at a point where you know maybe it, it fits within your context of reality and you can actually yeah. think about it in a strategic way. Um, uh, you you've been utilizing the the lean startup and the Stanford BioDesign approaches in mm-hmm. your business development role. Can can you share with us the principles behind lean startup? in Stanford's biodesign and how are they how are they used practically in new product development yeah sure um, you know maybe I'll take a step back and kind of talk about uh, two approaches that I'm familiar with in terms of how products are developed conceptualized and and potentially uh, discovered um, so so one approach is something we I've, I've heard referred to as a technology push what this means is somebody is just kind of asking what if questions, right? And just playing around in the lab until they discover something unique and valuable, something nobody else has thought of. And then when you have this thing, you push it out um, to others to say, hey, here's something I've developed. Is there a use case for it? And that's called the technology push. Um, uh, another approach I've, I've seen or experienced is this notion of a, a technology pool, which means You've identified a problem statement and you think it's worthwhile solving this problem statement and you're pulling for technology development to try to solve solve this problem statement that you've identified. Um, the Stanford Biodesign and the, the Lean Startup approaches kind of fall under the technology pool category, meaning um, particularly for um, Lean Startup uh, language, what are the jobs that needs to be done? Right, so you're looking for these problems to solve. Um, Biodesign refers to, in a sense, uh, jobs to be done as need statements. So I'll give you an example. So you could say you're interested in a particular um, a disease space. I'll use a medical medical example. So let's say you're, you're interested in like the cardiovascular system. And you're like, okay, so what are some of the issues that could exist uh, within the cardiovascular system? You might say, oh, okay, uh, people could develop uh, an aneurysm. An aneurysm is an expansion of, of one of the big vessels in your body and the, the consequence of which could lead to, you know, if you have too much expansion, rupture, and, and you could pretty much expire. Um, another problem is you could have the walls of this big vessel start to separate. Uh, so you're like, okay, um, how do we deal with that? How, when does it happen? And you can go through this journey of trying to understand, like, you know, who are the uh, the people susceptible to like having cardiovascular issues? Um, how are they identified today? Um, so you might say, maybe we're getting 50% of the people uh, with cardiovascular issues, and we're missing the remaining 50%. Why are we missing the remaining 50%? Well, because the symptom of this disease could be acute, meaning it just comes on right off the bat. It's not building over time. So, so you could say, oh, the detectability is 50%. That's a problem. So in biodesign language, they might say, okay, we need a way to improve the detectability of cardiovascular diseases to reduce mortality, right? So you've identified a problem statement, which is, you know, better, uh, you know, detectability and, and the outcome you're trying to solve is mortality. 
right? So, so that could now um, necessitate a technology pool to say, how would you figure out a different way to detect, you know, cardiovascular diseases? Another example could be, let's say you spend time in operating rooms and you're just kind of observing what physicians are doing. So let's describe this scenario as, you know, uh, it's a minimally invasive procedure. So you're using all this um, uh, eye-end imaging technology that requires some form of radiation. And, you know, physicians have to protect themselves from the said radiation. You might look at the current technology and say, is it effective, right? Um, what are some of the issues with the, you know, what are the current trade-offs with the current technology and things of the sort? And there you can start to like fish out for unmet needs, right? Using the Stanford Biodesign language. And then once you find, and there are so many ways to like quantify or qualify like whether a met need is worth solving. And the question of worth is totally dependent as well. We can talk about it. But once you have this, you know, a list of, and you're going there, you're not just looking for one. I mean, you're looking for like as much as you can find. And you're filtering it down till you find the most attractive on that need. And then you pull for a technology to try to solve the on that need. Does that help? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a real quick break here and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device engineering teams who need turnkey automated equipment or custom test fixtures to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. Uh, we're speaking with IT today and, uh, you you spent some time studying behavioral economics and improving your own decision-making process. Can you share a few of the golden nuggets that you've learned in this area and, and how it can help us as engineers and really just as people in general improve our work and personal lives? Yeah, I know that's, that's a good one. Um, so maybe start with why, like, why did I, why did I even go into this um, space of behavioral economics? I had a, so when I got out of college, um, I had this opinion that if I can just lay out, so let's say I'm trying to like persuade somebody um, to do something. Um, if I could just lay out the logic behind my idea, that that was enough. Like I didn't have to do any more work to get people to see why it's valuable to do what I was proposing. And, you know, I tried that and started to track my level of success and recognize that, you know, so if you were to like say, you know, think about, uh, you know, Y by X um, uh, chart, you know, just trying to model like, hey, this is IT's input into decision making and this is kind of the response and uh, level of success. And you try to draw a line to fit, to fit that, you know, F of X. I recognized that I was batting 50% or less. So, so my logic algorithm wasn't working. I was, I was so positive <laughs> by that. I was like, wait, what? What's going on? Like, it totally makes sense. Why, why aren't we doing this? Um, so my search into or, or um, my deep dive into behavioral economics was to try to figure out, okay, what's going on? How do people, how do you persuade people? How do we think? And why do people do what they do? Um, um, so, so the first insight um, that I learned was there's a difference between the thinking self and the behaving self. Uh, so I'll give you um, I'll give you an example. So, so let's say um, somebody um, I don't know 
New Year's resolution or something like that. Uh, I'm going to start working out um, starting in January. And they're really thinking this. Uh, but then when you start to like track that behavior, maybe you see like this uh, initial uh, alignment with the thinking self and the behaving self. Uh, they have this very rational story in their mind. But over time, you start to see a decay or, or a separation between the thinking self and the behaving self, meaning that their behavior doesn't align with the vision uh, that they have for themselves. So that's, that's kind of the first, uh, first insight. Um, and along those lines is the second insight, which is the behaving self actually accounts for, um, it's, it's, you know, like more than 80% of what we do is automatic, right? So you've probably heard people talk about your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. And, and this subconscious mind is the behaving, behaving self. And it turns out like there are three things you have to like account for to make sure that you're recording your subconscious mind in the manner that aligns with your thinking self. So if you want to form a habit, there are three things you need to pay attention to. And this is well documented in a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Stewart. So if your audience is interested in this, I recommend they pick up that book and take a read. Uh, so the three nodes are, you know, you have a cue, and a cue is something that triggers a behavior. Um, and then the behavior is codified as a routine, uh, which means, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example to, like, make sure this kind of sinks in. And then and the last node is the reward system. So here's something I do. Uh, I like to run. So I run, and I'm not saying this is recommended or anything, but I run every day for the most part. Um, when I started running, um, I recognized that, hey, I needed a cue. And for me, the cue was waking up around a particular time. And then when I woke up, you know, kind of down the routine, wear the same thing uh, and go out for a run. And then when I got, got back, there was a reward that I always, um, you know, enjoyed. And I do this every day. Uh, and, and what happened was over time, uh, the level of energy required for me to activate running kind of went down. To the point where, like, if I didn't run, if, if it feels weird, like, you know, not running feels weird uh, now. Um, so, so that was that. That's another insight that that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, what what were your your triggers and your rewards for running? Yeah. So, um, and and you kind of have to like. I think it's totally dependent on the person. Um, so, for me, this mem uh, the story I tell myself is, um, I work out because. I want to improve my mental resilience, right? So mental toughness, it's kind of the story. This is going to sound really weird, um, but the way I measure that is, okay, if, I'm, if it's all about mental toughness, um, I've got to like get to a point where like I'm, I'm sweating, right? Like I'm really, really, really sweating. So when I'm sweating, that's my measure of mental toughness. So it's, in a sense, funny because the routine and the reward are kind of linked together, right? So the more I sweat, the more I want to run because that's the reward. Does that make sense? <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, for some people, so I'll, I'll describe a typical case study uh, that was actually covered in the book, The Power of Habit. Um, a long time ago, they wanted to figure out a way to improve oral hygiene uh, within, you know, Western society. And, and the, the value there is, if I'm getting my story right, uh, within, you know, the military system, oral hygiene was actually decreasing the efficiency of troops, right? So what they did was, you know, they created this product, right, the toothpaste and the toothbrush. But 
it wasn't sticky. Right? People weren't just, you know, picking up a toothpaste um, and, and brushing their teeth. So they did a couple of things. Um, you notice that most toothpaste have a taste to them, and the taste is generally sweet. That's by design. Um, and then um, another thing you will notice is in a toothpaste, there's almost a minty uh, feeling after you brush your teeth. That's also by design. So what they recognize is when you wake up, you have this morning kind of film on, in, your, in your mouth. You can kind of really feel this morning feel in your mouth, this tactile feel. Uh, and they codify that as not clean. And then when you brush your teeth, you have this minty, cool feeling, and they codify that as clean. So and that's the reward. And that's the reward. And, and, yeah. and there's a bunch of narrative that kind of, you know, helps solidify this uh, habit loop. But, but anyway, just getting into that world, which is truly not engineering, uh, at least in my experience, was just very interesting. And I've kind of leveraged that in product design and kind of influencing as well. And I could talk forever about it, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fascinating. Behavioral yeah. economics is so uh, just interesting, and not just interesting, but, but relevant to pretty much everyone. I mean, it, it, to some extent, we're all salespeople, right? We're, yep. we're all trying to, you know, push our agenda and make things happen. And understanding how humans work is an invaluable tool in being able to accomplish those, those ends. Um, which leads me to my next question. Uh, I feel like I'm not asking you a ton of directly engineering questions, but that's okay. These are all really interesting topics, I think. Tell me about ping pong. Oh. <laughs> I read that <laughs> you have this ping pong program yeah. you put together. Please share with us about that. Yeah, so um, I was, so Boys, as you know, it's a global company, and I took a temporary assignment uh, in another region. And I was there, you know, the goal was to be there for like three months. So there are a couple of problems I needed to solve. I needed to build credibility. That's the language we use at Gore. Um, it's, it's almost a derivative of trust, you know, people trusting your uh, ability, you know, willing to work with you, etc. And I needed to also deliver at the same time, all within three months. And when I got to this new spot, uh, what the plant leader just came up, um, came up to my office and, and picked me up and said, yeah, let's go play ping pong. You know, I'm like, wait, what? Are you serious? <laughs> and, you know, we go to this pinpoint table we're playing and like five minutes later, a couple of people gather and I just, you know, like I got off the table and I kind of just noticed like the social dynamic, like just the camaraderie, the, you know, like it was amazing. Um, and in a week, everybody knew my name. They knew where I was coming from. They were willing to work with me. It was just amazing. Uh, like it catalyzed my ability to build credibility with this. Uh, new group. So after my um, after my you know three months assignment in this region, and I went back to my uh, originating uh, region, I pitched I pitched the leadership to say, hey, you know, um, here's the problem I see within within our community X Y Z, um, and I think I think we could really solve it um, by having a pinpoint table. And as you can imagine, everybody <laughs> kind of looked a bit weird and like, are you serious? Like. Uh. Ultimately, um, through maybe serendipity, luck, faith, uh, I was able to convince them to run an experiment. Like, let's just try it out. And, you know, initially you can kind of see like, you know, hesitation, like everybody wasn't sure, like, hey, you know, if I'm playing pinball, people not think I'm, you know, 
like just lazing around and not doing my right, job. But yeah. ultimately what it led to, it took off pretty massively actually to the point where like there were interplants, tournaments, etc. Oh, wow. Yeah. How cool. Um, and the lesson there, going back to like, you know, um, behavior economics, um, system one, system two, or your subconscious versus your conscious mind, um, your, your subconscious mind um, is really governed by emotion, right? Um, so when you're going to a new spot, your amygdala is very active and trying to figure out what are the do's and don'ts within an environment. If you can reduce that activity and build trust within that subconscious mind, it's going to translate into the working relationship. And, and I thought kind of played out from this experiment as well. So the job that this ping pong table was hired to do in kind of the way uh, Clayton Christensen would probably put it mm -hmm. is uh, develop unity within the teams and the groups yeah. there at Gore. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also um, it was so hundred percent, but if you kind of also think about the kind of, um, you know, things that happen within the plant I was in, it's a very highly technical plant. And what that means is, you know, you have a ton of people trying to solve really difficult problems and it's not uncommon that they run into like challenges. And the ping pong table is the way for you to actually shift focus, you know, shift energy away from your conscious mind and actually get, you know, a lot of people have done research into like insights and where, you know, ideas kind of come from. And it turns out that um, we have these loose connections in our brain and then when they all kind of align, that's, that's kind of when the aha moment kind of comes from. And, and when you can take your mind away from the problem and actually let your subconscious work on it, it's been shown that it's more probable that it would actually help you get to that aha moment um, a little bit as well. At least that's the pitch I gave. Uh, but I think that's, that's also part of the jobs to be done. Well, I've read similar things, right, where um, they talk about play being mm -hmm. really important within highly technical environments because you're focused so intently on solving this really complicated problem. And if you keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, you, you, you might kind of burn out or just get stuck. But if you can separate your, your, your mental effort from the problem at hand just for a little while and go play something, do something fun, like play ping pong, yeah. that's sometimes when the aha moments can, can strike or, I don't know, people talk about being in the shower and having good ideas, you know, while they're in the shower. Again, we're, we're uh, removed from the situation in question. Agreed. Um, I, I love the, the story of the, of the ping pong table. We might have to consider getting a ping pong table <laughs> at Pipeline. I think that would be super fun. Awesome. Yeah, I think it would be good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's see. Let, let me ask you, uh, an actual engineering question here. Mm -hmm. What what changes do you think could be made in engineering teams to make those teams more effective in design, uh, collaboration, R and D? I mean, what what are the things that you put up with each day or each week that you think to yourself, why are we doing it this way? Surely there's got to be a better way. Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, let's. Um, let's take a, you know, let's take a step back and kind of think about this. Um, so let's say a problem we're trying to solve is a way to, let's say you have an MPD team trying to like commercialize a product, right? And you can look at data and say it takes about 
seven years to commercialize a product. And then you could pose this problem statement of, is there a way for us to reduce that from like seven years to five years, right? And then once you have that vision, you could say, let's look at the existing kind of operations, how we go from like, you know, front end to commercialization. Let's see how, where are the opportunities for us to make some improvements um, and optimize uh, execution so that we can get this, you know, time commercialization time uh, reduction that we're going for. So from that kind of frame, um, what are some of the challenges that I deal with and, and what are some ways um, that I think we could kind of solve it? So as you probably know, um, you know, it's one thing to like, you know, be an individual innovator and venture. Um, but I think if you look at, you know, products that exist in the marketplace today, it's more likely that you have a team behind the product, not just one person. Um, and then once you have a team, you now have to start to think about, okay, so it's almost like a chain and the team is only as strong as you know its weakest link. Um, and that's really just an analogy uh, to, to, to kind of highlight that communication is really important between teams, right? And, and once those communications start to break down, you have, you have problems. So, so one area you can focus in on is how do you how do you improve communication, right? Um, and and one of the things like on the teams I've been on, um, you start to pay attention and you recognize that hey, you know the first thing is you got to make sure that everybody understands the vision and the goal. Like, I think you can't skip that step. Like, communicate, communicate, communicate. Make sure everybody gets the vision. Like, where are we trying to go? Um, does it make sense to you? Let's talk about it, right? And then the second thing you've got to, you have to do is build trust and, and establish, um, you know, sometimes you use this terminology of goal contracts or commitments. Um, like people really have to know like, hey, this is what I'm bringing to the team. And if I don't deliver on this commitment or contract, the whole team is going to suffer, right? Because we really, again, it's, it's a link. It's not a, an individual thing. Beyond that, now you just gotta like, and, and there's no like um, one thing to say for every team that exists out there, but as a team leader, you really have to now observe your team, right? It's almost like you have to pay attention to your, your car, like your mechanical system. A human system is, you can probably use the mechanical systems analogy to kind of, you know, get some insights into how human systems work. Um, like as a leader, you have to understand like, hey, this person likes to come in at this amount of time um, and, and, and they work best in this time period and they work best doing X, Y, Z kind of a thing. You really have to pay attention to that. And, and you just have to like slowly, you know, like experiment with the team and pay attention to the output. So, so one of the things we've done um, here at Gore, at least within the teams that I've been on at Gore, it's very likely that people have multiple commitments, right? So, you're not just working on one thing. Um, but one of the things I try to do is, hey, you have Monday to Friday. Monday to Wednesday, you're going to devote to like this project that we're on together, right? Because I don't want you switching back and forth because I know you're going to lose efficiency. And if you lose efficiency, chances are it's going to snowball um, into like the overall project timeline. And then maybe Thursday to Friday, you can, I know not to bother you, right? Only 
only on special cases I know not to bother you. Um, so, so that's just kind of one idea. And you can kind of apply that thinking to a lot of things like equipment. Uh, you can apply it to like funding. Um, you, you can, you, I, I think, I think one, I, the important thing is to just pay attention to like that thinking and make sure that, you know, you're properly articulating a goal and, and really, you know, there's no, you just have to be willing to experiment, you know, because teams, people are really different. And sometimes the solution is not what you think it will be until you pay attention and, and try to experiment. So. I think that's a very astute point that you have to be willing to experiment. It makes me think about my kids, actually. Uh, we, we've had, you know, some minor struggles with our kids where they're not doing what they're supposed to be or they're not doing well in school or they're having behavioral, you know, problems or whatever. And so far, anyway, we, my wife and I have not found like the silver bullet that, yeah. that helps us fix these things, right? It's, okay, we're having this problem, and my wife and I will get together and say, what can we do about this? What do we think might be a, a helpful solution? And we'll try something. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't, we'll think about, we'll brainstorm a little bit more. What else can yeah. we try? Well, what if we did this? Okay, let's try that. And it's this like continuing evolution of ideas, right? And and even when you find one that does work, chances are it doesn't work forever, Yep. It works for some period of time and then it loses its effectiveness and you have to think of another idea. So it's again, this continual evolution of implementing new ideas and evaluating how well they work. And if they don't work, you put a new idea in there. And if they do work, well, maybe there's some improvement you can do over time or maybe it stops working at some point, in which case you start the process all over. When I, when I spoke with Elizabeth, uh, uh, Millette, uh, several weeks ago, she she talked about the importance of communication as well. And I remember thinking during that conversation, you know, that there really is no substitute for for good communication. Sometimes, as an engineer, I I try to come up with a process that will fix something, and not to minimize the importance of processes. I think they are very important, but. There's there's no process that fixes a lack of communication. Yeah. You, you just have to have people talking, and there's no there's no way around that. No amount of checklists are going to solve the people uh, the problem of people not not talking, not communicating enough. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, and one of the things, at least Agor, um, you know, we have this lattice organization, and you know, the way I, I like to think about it is every person within this organization is, is almost like a, uh, a brain cell, right? And, and you have all this connectivity, you know, uh, that stretches out to every associate. And, you know, the system works if there's communication, right? It's this signal flying all over the place, right? If, if, if there's a shortage in, 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 a, in a connection, uh, you can have a systemic, can have a systemic issue. So as a leader, I really pay attention to that for sure. Um, and, you know, I go in there believing that um, everybody, again, going back to like, you know, behavior economics, like, you know, there's a cue, there's a routine, there's a reward. And, and there's something that everybody on the team cares about. And I have to understand that as a leader. And I have to make sure I do my best uh, to make sure that people are getting utility out of being a member of the team, because that's why, that's the only reason why they're, they're going to want to wake up in the morning and, and put on their shoes and go and run, quote unquote, and, and feel good about while doing it each and every day. So 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, IT, this has been awesome. Uh, yeah. You shared some really insightful comments, and I, I deeply appreciate it. How can people get a hold of you? Yeah, thanks. So I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, people can find find me by searching for my real name, Kenda Majalabi. Uh, they can also shoot me an email anytime. So it's I'll spell it out: K M A J O L A G at com. Terrific. Uh, I I do have one more question. Where did your nickname IT come from? <laughs> that's a great. That's good. Uh, so this is going to be. Um, I'll tell a little story. Um, and it's going to be, you know, insightful for folks to understand kind of how the naming conventions in, in a particular tribe in Nigeria um, actually work. So Kahinde means it's my first name, but it's more than a name. It's also my birth identity. So it means the second twin. So you can probably infer from that statement that I'm a twin and I'm the second twin, right? Um, so, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and the tribe is... You know, it's the Yoruba tribe of Nigeria. So whenever you have a twin and it's the second twin, the name is Kaime. Uh, in my particular family, my mom has two sets of twins. Um, wow. So I have an older sister also called Kaime. Um, so, so the system kind of breaks that, you know, breaks down from that standpoint. <laughs> like, you can have two kids. With that the can happen name. very often. Yeah, like, hey, Sean, hey, Sean. That doesn't work. So uh, I went by my middle name. Um, and my middle name is spelled A-D-E-I-T, which is where the IT comes from, ah. U-N-U. Um, another thing about my particular family in Nigeria, um, when you don't have a birth order name, that A-D-E is uh, a unifier. Uh, so my siblings have it in front of their names. My cousins have it in front of their name. It's almost, um, it's not quite a last name, but it's, it's, it's a unifier similar to a last name. Uh, so my unique name is IT, you and you, and somebody just decided to get rid of the last three letters and voila, <laughs> IT. Fascinating. I yeah. love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. How interesting. Yeah. Okay, IT. Well, this has been just a, a pure delight. Thank you so much again. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a fun, engaging conversation. I'm Aaron Moncur founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.